Welcome to the Compounders Podcast, where we explore the anatomy of public company wealth creation stories. On this show, we invite you to be a fly on the wall for the actual conversations professional investors have with public company CEOs. I'm your host, Ben Claremont, a partner and portfolio manager at Cove Street Capital. In these conversations, I interview senior executives by posing the exact questions I ask as part of Cove Street's diligence process. Whether you are a professional investor, founder, or someone who is simply interested in business, we think this podcast has something for you. This season of Compounders, The Anatomy of a Multibagger is sponsored by Tegas. Tegas is an innovative and disruptive company that is changing the way professional investors work. For more information, please visit their site at tegas.co. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Cove Street Capital or any affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. Our guest on the show today is Ramesh Srinivasan, the CEO of Agilisys. Agilisys is a $900 million market cap company that provides software and hardware products and services to the hospitality industry. Ramesh became CEO back in 2017 after a somewhat rocky turnaround attempt by a prior management team. Agilisys was starting to generate higher gross margins and revenue growth before the COVID outbreak impacted its trajectory, starting in the company's fiscal year 2021. Given the recent challenges and with everything going on in the hospitality industry, I was eager to talk with Ramesh about the organic growth path he sees for the company in upcoming years, how the company manages the desire to grow with the need to generate operating profits, the ways in which Agilisys helped its customers respond to the COVID-related issues, his thoughts on M&A and expanding the company's presence outside the U.S., and the benefits and challenges associated with rolling out cloud-native software-as-a-service products. For full disclosure, Cove Street is not an Agilisys shareholder. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with Agilisys CEO, Ramesh Srinivasan. As always, we will start at a pivotal moment in the company's history. Let's go back to 2017 when you became CEO. From my understanding, you took over after a somewhat rocky turnaround attempt by a prior management team. What was it that drew you to the company and what did you think needed to be done to change the trajectory of Agilisys? Yep. Yes, Ben, good morning. Uh, yes, January 2017, I actually joined Agilisys on the very first day of a working day of January 2017. And yes, there were, there were multiple major issues that the company was grappling with. Uh, one of them was, the biggest of them all was the product issue. So we had a set of products that Agilisys over a period of time in the past uh, before 2012, 2013, when it decided it's only going to focus on hospitality software solutions. Before that, they had acquired a bunch of products that were still of old technology. And as of Jan 2017, was still constituting well more than 90% of the revenue. Now, starting 2012, 2013, this company had started developing a couple of products that were a lot more modern technology into which, into which a lot of money was poured. That's where all the money was going. And those products didn't have enough feature sets to be competitive enough in the market. So here you had two products that had used up a lot of the money that didn't have enough features. And you had a whole set of products that customers were depending on that were sort of not taken care of, let's say, for four or five years. So the situation product-wise was 
a set of products that you were dependent on revenue that were very old technology and a couple of products that had the technology but didn't have the feature sets and here and the other issue was customers were quite unhappy that time because the products they had invested in were not moving forward for the last few years along with that with the customer dissatisfaction levels the company was also losing cash about 13 to 15 million cash a year so it was a, it was like a multiple variable equation and all those variables were not going well now what attracted me to the job is that number one turnarounds haven't faced me before i've been through uh, one or two turnarounds in public enterprise software companies that turned out to be extraordinarily successful so i had the confidence that we could handle this and when i analyzed it i thought all the problems or all the challenges with this company were all internal Uh, you could control them uh, we had control over them like there was no government regulation issue there was no environmental issue there was nothing like that this was all man made that we could handle inside entirely hospitality focused and remember that time i didn't know the meaning of two words pandemic and covid if you had told me january 2017 pandemic i had no idea so i thought we could control it and we could fix this if we do the right things like had happened in a couple of companies before so it's confident of turning it around the tam was huge the total addressable market was in billions while this was more like a 125 annual revenue company so that was a huge opportunity in front of it and the competition was good not great many big competitors who did a thousand things also did hospitality many small competitors were struggling to scale so i thought this was a controllable opportunity that if you do the right things you could move this company forward and to dig in a little bit on that so what that that sounds like a really difficult equation to solve and and it seems like you had to invest in some things and not invest in others so so what what has you know let's go from 2017 to pre covid what what did you do to try to solve that equation yeah so you start peeling the onion one by one and the biggest layer of the issue was r and d uh, so you you had a bunch of products that customers really liked that were rich in feature sets and that were rich in business functionality you had a couple of products that were good technology but didn't have many of the features so it was an r and d issue to start with and in order to resolve that the first thing you needed to and it was also not a financially healthy company so what you needed to do was reduce the cost of r and d per unit of output so that was the very first objective and in a way it simplified itself because that was the problem glaring in front of your face i mean you didn't require uh you know consultants to come in and figure that out it was it was right in front of your face that unless you solve the product problem this company was not going anywhere and you had to solve it while simultaneously fixing the financial issues with the company as well so reducing the cost of per unit of output of r&d was the first focus now luckily in a previous couple of jobs where i had uh, you know been fairly successful before uh we knew how to handle a captive offshore development center which this company did not have so starting the india development center was quite crucial so we built a good combination of us r&d and uh, you know india based r&d that started modernizing the core products that started adding features to those two products and also before covid or during covid created 17 new modules software modules that made us an end to end hospitality software provider all of modern technology so it was r and d that we had to fix first and we put all our eggs in that basket for about 4 or 5 years and where would you say you are on that journey i mean have you you know have you have you gotten to where you want to be um because i see that you've 
you've, you've started to spend a lot more on R&D. You've tripled the team already. I mean, I'm trying to get a sense of, of how far you think you've gotten relative to the 2017 period. We've come a very long way. Our products in terms of modernization, in terms of the, in terms of our objective of being an end-to-end hospitality software solutions provider, all the products end-to-end being modern, which means cloud native, of the same code base being able to support both the cloud and on-premise, because there are still many customers here who want to be on-premise for good reasons. So we couldn't spend more in R&D to support that. So the same code base supports both. So if you want to go on-premise today and then move to cloud tomorrow, you could do that, right? There is no issue with that. So creating all of that, we are about in the ninth inning, right? Most of the products are already done and even implemented in the field. And some products have weeks and months worth of work, which are also getting to the field. So in terms of achieving our product objectives, we are in the ninth inning. And while doing that, we also fixed ourselves financially. And we did all this without increasing R&D expenditure too much. So if you if you really analyze our R&D numbers, the numbers didn't go up as much, right? When you compare FY18 to now, only went up by like seven, eight million or so at best, while we tripled our R&D strength. Uh, so we've really done a lot without hurting the company financially, while keeping R&D as a percentage of revenue still stable. Uh, the product objectives have been achieved, and now we are in the process of moving to more a sales and marketing driven company. And now that you have the platform from which to grow, I'm interested in digging in on the organic growth opportunity that you have in front of you. So the company was seeing some pretty nice growth pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the last two years have been some, somewhat challenging for your customers. Maybe walk us through, you talked about the TAM, but maybe talk about the, the size of the opportunity and, and maybe talk a little bit about like what solutions you're displacing when you're signing up new customers. Yeah, so the opportunity is huge. Like when you look at our recurring revenue, if you take the last quarter results and multiply it by four, our recurring revenue annual, ARR just crossed the $100 million annual uh, run rate, exit run rate of Q4 is Q3 is more than 100 million. So you think of us as a 100 million ARR company, the market potential is three to 5 billion, depending on which numbers you believe. And we don't spend too much time analyzing it because we know it is huge. All right, we have a couple of huge competitors who are many times bigger than us. So the opportunity is clearly there. Now, as far as COVID is concerned, in certain industries, and luckily for us, the two strongest, two industries in which we are the strongest, gaming, casinos, and uh, complex multi-amenity resorts, which are the ones doing very well, and they are the ones who have the greatest demand for modern technology. Now, this industry has not been particularly greatly served, I would say, by its vendors. Uh, There's not been enough R&D investment. There has not been enough product innovation. There are just too many peers who just stay in to just take the recurring revenue as long as they can, Uh, not investing in the product, not moving it forward and all that. So all that has created big opportunities for us. Now, in the two industries that are doing well during COVID, our product innovation has created an enhanced uh, requirement, need for these products. So, for example, contactless. All right, your guests, if you are running a hotel or a resort, your guests are now more and more used to modern technology. So they want everything on their phone. And, uh, you know, they want everything contactless. They want everything integrated. When they come to the hotel reception, they want you to know that I have a spa appointment at 2 o'clock. And when I'm at the restaurant in, uh, for lunch, you need to know I have a golf appointment coming up at 1.30. 
So the whole thing has to be connected with modern technology and in your hands on your phone. So the guest demands are increasing. And along with that, you can no longer create guest experience just with people. COVID create, I mean, initially a lot of the philosophy used to be that you create great ex guest experience by how well your people serve the guests. But now with COVID, you want distancing and you want more to be served by technology as much as you want to be served by people. So all that has actually created an extra need. And we were lucky in the sense we were investing in all this even before COVID because this is where the industry was going. So we were already investing in all that. Now, the way I would answer the question, Ben, is in the two industries that are healthy and also happens to be our strongest, where 70% of our business is that, the industries that are doing well, COVID actually sped up. It actually increased the pace of the requirement. Now, in other industries, though, like managed food service providers, Asia as a, you know, as a region, you know, EMEA as a region, hotel chains where business travel still hasn't come back, the fundamental business environment hasn't been great. So that demand has struggled because of COVID. In spite of our products being a lot superior now, their business fundamentally hasn't done much better. So it has not been great. But in the two industries where we are very strong, it has actually sped up the need for these products. So it's been a combination of those two things. Compounders is brought to you in partnership with Tegas. We created Compounders to uncover the lessons and frameworks of the best capital compounders in the world. And if you are a professional investor, VC, or operator, and you appreciate the deep research into the businesses explored on this podcast, check out tegas.co slash compounders. With Tegas, you can learn about any company directly from former execs, current customers, and industry experts, all of which are in position to offer unique insights into companies' growth its customer value, and its competition. What makes Tegas different is that you don't have to lead your own expert calls. The platform offers instant access to the world's largest collection of investor-led call transcripts on companies such as Compounders Guests, Viasat, Element Solutions, and Avid Technology. All you have to do is log in and you'll get instant access to nearly 25,000 expert call transcripts. And the best part, the Tegas collection grows larger with each investor and company that joins. Still want to do your own expert calls? Tegas is the right solution. Experts that are just as good or better than what you'd find on other networks, but starting at just $300 per call, not the $1,000 or more others charge. If you're ready to go deeper on the next compounding business, head to tegas.co slash compounders for a free trial. I can personally say that having access to the Tegas platform and Rolodex of experts has fundamentally changed the quality of due diligence Coast Street does on both new and existing ideas. And I think you mentioned that um, the your vendors have not served your customers particularly well in the past. I mean, is that this industry seems to have been a laggard in terms of updating its technology and becoming, you know, like very technologically forward. Was that due to a lack of solutions or some kind of lack of demand from the customers as well? It's hard. Therefore, they probably haven't done it. So what happened in this industry was a couple of big players who do a lot of things and also do hospitality sort of dominated the industry. They did extremely well like 10, 15 years ago when companies like Agilisys were not investing enough in R&D and not innovating enough. So two, three, four, five of those players really dominated it. And it is not easy, right? B2B enterprise software is not easy when you are vertically focused. 
See, B2C is one thing. You create a product and 100 million people want it. It solves all ills. And when you are in a horizontal B2B, when there are millions of businesses or hundreds of thousands of businesses want your product, there is scale. You can sort that out. But B2B enterprise software, when you are more vertically focused, when you are only hospitality focused, uh, the scale is not that easy to create, right? So it has to be a combination of handling the short term and the long term. It has to be a combination of short term customer centricity and long term product vision. It's not easy handling that, right? But that I, I so happened all my career, I've been in these kinds of businesses. It, it's not easy to do that. So many people were just not interested in putting that kind of investment. And a lot of the venture capitalists and all those kinds of investment tend to go to the lower end of the market. We are in the complex enterprise software sale. They tend to go to the lower end of the market. That's how they tend to go. And also end-to-end, -end, that is starting from a booking engine all the way to property management systems, point of sale, service optimization, check-in, check-out, mobile, spa, golf, sales and catering. Many vendors are just not interested in doing it end-to-end. They just advertise their API in uh, architecture, which we also have. We have the dual advantage. We provide the API architecture in case you choose a competing product to connect with, no problem. But we also provide you end-to-end -end integration. That kind of investment and interest, not many people have. And the VCs were picking off the lower end of the market or maybe one additional module, two additional modules. The barrier to entry to what we are doing now, the complex enterprise software sale is not an easy thing to do so people just took the uh, lower hanging fruits. So you mentioned having scale in your response there, and, and it brings up an interesting point about kind of focuses on a vertical, focusing on a vertical versus kind of going horizontal. So I'm interested, I mean, are you, is this, are you head down casinos, resorts, hospitalities, and that is our world, it's a huge TAM, or are there, you know, some other, industries, retail, restaurants, at some point in this company's trajectory that could benefit from your software solutions? Yeah. At some point, yes, Ben. Currently, no. Uh, so hospitality is a huge space. Even though you are vertically focused, like I told you earlier, it's in the billions. Our total addressable market, just in terms of recurring revenue alone, is in the billions. So just in the verticals that we are focused in, gaming casinos, the, the hospitality part of game, the non-gaming part of gaming casinos, resorts, hotel chains, managed food service providers, and we have not even scratched the surface in international regions so far. We have enormous growth potential. So that is our focus. In all, and we can be enormously successful with that progress, uh, both with revenue growth and profitability. But in order to do that, we first, first had to create a foundation of solid modern technology base, which is what took us five years to do or four years to do. We have been successful doing that. And it has been enormously successful so far, which we can see from our win-loss ratio. Now all we need is add back. Once people see, once customers see demos, we are very successful because every answer is yes. You want to go to the cloud? Yes. You want to be on-premise? Yes. Uh, you want end-to-end -end solutions? Yes. You want only POS? Yes. You know, all the answers are yes and not many vendors can do that. So we have enormous potential. We've just laid the foundation, I would say. All the products, our demos are now 100% modern technology, only for the last six months or so. So we first want to settle in with that foundation. Now, once you settle in in that foundation, if you were doing this interview to me, say one year from now or 18 months from now, there are opportunities for market expansion. Because the modern, the products are modern technology. They are easily enhanceable and extendable. 
Now it is a matter of mastering some integrations, some time management integration, some labor management integration, a third party food delivery integration. So the few integrations like that, if we master, we can start expanding our market. But there's no need for that now. We've just done the, the first product steps. We now want to increase sales and marketing. We want to grow in this, what we are doing now. About 12 to 24 months from now, the opportunities will be there to add an integration here, a module here, and start moving into our neighboring markets as well, but within the range of hospitality. And you've mentioned the competition a couple of times. I'm interested in the competitive landscape and how it's changed. And then maybe talk a little bit about how you think your products and the, the, the money that you put in, the R&D money you put into these products, how you've made them differentiated. Yeah. Yeah. So the competitive landscape hasn't changed much, I would say. Here and there, yes, but not much. Our competitive positioning in the U.S. is very strong, uh, right? And I will tell you why when I answer the second part of the question. We still have to establish ourselves, ourselves in Asia and EMEA. And it has been a product-driven problem there as well. The reason why we have not focused much on international regions so far is we had to fix the product first. Uh, and for example, I'll give you one small example, like our point of sale solution that runs on the terminal that you see in restaurants when you go to a resort, so far could only support a Windows terminal, right? It only ran on a Windows terminal. Now, you know, Asia and Europe have different preferences, a majority of the part. One prefers Android, one prefers iOS. And the Windows terminal only goes so far when you come to handheld uh, you know, kind of functionality. So it took us two years to completely rewrite, modernize the terminal. Today, our POS terminal is not only the best POS in the market in terms of conversational ordering, in terms of being able to place your order, food order a lot easier, in terms of being able to say, well, I want the same hamburger as this, but just don't put lettuce in mine, you know, kind of minor things. Operationally, it is the best POS, but in addition, the same code base supports Windows, iOS, and Android. That's a big deal. And so what that means is that terminal that runs when you enter the restaurant at the front desk is the same software that a waiter can carry around in an iPad or in an Android tablet or on your phone to take the orders or to go process the check. It's the same software that runs. We don't go to a third-party vendor and say connected to our system. It's the same software. So when you do an enhancement here, it reflects here as well. So now we have the product to go after Asia and Europe, right? Now we have the product sets that are also easily internationalizable or localizable. If you want to create a Spanish system with all Spanish language, you don't need to go touch the software. You just take the database with all the literals and translate it to any language you need. So all that has been created now. So international region, we have enormous opportunities to grow as well. Now, coming back to the competitive positioning, in the US, we are well positioned because all modern technology, which not many vendors can claim, and also end-to-end. -end, our biggest competitors provide the core products and then tell you, we are giving you APIs. You go figure out the additional modules yourself and go integrate with them. While we provide end-to-end -end as well, and we also provide the API architecture in case the customer wants to choose another a competing product for one of the modules. So what we are finding is our deal size is going up and we have a real competitive advantage in the US because we are an end-to-end -end provider. It saves a lot of headaches for customers having to integrate. Internationally, our competition is quite stiff there because we have not established ourselves well enough. Like we have pretty formidable competitors in APAC, 
and in europe there are a lot of good technology vendors who are local we are just in the process of establishing ourselves there and improving our competitive positioning by better sales and marketing so i definitely want to dig into that a little more so i mean i think if i look at your revenue as of the last uh, last 10k about 10% of your revenue was outside the us so i'm interested in you know you i think there's this idea especially in the technology engineering space where if you have the best product it wins but you need sales and distribution and partners and all that stuff so maybe maybe talk a little bit about that strategy of now that you have the product what are you doing on the ground to to grow it outside the US both in the US and outside the US then we have both the challenges so we have so far since we have spent so much on R&D we have not done justice to sales and marketing so the r&d investments we have done now as we have said publicly is has a lot of operating leverage we don't need to increase our r&d resources from where they are today for the next many tens of millions of revenue growth we don't need to increase that there will be some cost increases with merit increases and incentive bonus increases and all that but the number of resources we don't need to increase much in r&d because we sort of predid it if you know if you know what i mean we invested first in r&d so now as our revenue increases and our margins increase a lot of the investment of that is going to go into sales and marketing along with customer facing services support and those areas but mostly into sales and marketing now it is a matter of increasing the coverage putting more feet on the ground increasing our marketing presence in fact our market lack of marketing presence affects us not only with revenue growth it even affects us with investors like you right many people just don't know about us because we have not gone to the top of the mountain and told everyone this is what we are doing so that marketing sales investment we need not only internationally we need it in the us as well and that's where our current focus is we are increasing our sales presence we are just about close to hiring a head of marketing now uh, that we are just closing in now we're going to expand our marketing department uh, and our marketing digital marketing presence and everything else because now we feel confident that if you go recommend a customer to us and all we need to do is for them to see the product demo and listen to our reference customers and we'll be in good shape so sales and marketing increase is going to happen in the us and for international regions as well and i think this is a good time to talk a little bit about margins and profitability and investing for growth because you now you're shifting from more of an r&d focus to a to a you know sales and marketing focus so i i'm interested in your philosophy and how you think about balancing that desire to grow with the needs of the business to you know and 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 investing in the business especially now as you're more moving into sales and marketing versus you know maybe investors desire or you're just in general innate desire to generate higher you know operating and ebitda margins over time how are you balancing that yeah so our our results so far other than this fiscal year fy22 the three quarters have not reflected our philosophy of being a discipline growth company all the success i have had in enterprise software i grew up under mentors uh, who taught me well who taught me that you don't need to sacrifice one for the other right it is possible to grow a company profitably right you don't need to go bonkers with uh, investing and affecting your profitability now we had to invest more in r&d it was a matter of survival without the products becoming modern there was no company right there was no question of company now that we are past that phase we are back to our discipline growth selves 
So you should expect us to grow in a disciplined manner. Now, our previous results have not reflected that. And I'll give you a few things to just keep in mind as you look at our results. It's all going to get corrected itself soon. The trailing 12 months, once last year's Q4 goes away, the trailing 12 months results and all are going to be fine. But three things to keep in mind. One, our fiscal year is April through March. So when I talk about Q4, please remember it's January through March. It's not October through December. April through March is what we do, uh, Q1 to Q4. What we were doing before is we were capitalizing R&D costs because we were increasing, uh, we were investing in R&D and we were going to sell it years later, right? So there was a reason to capitalize costs. So as of FY19, which is like April 19 through June 19, calendar 19 timeframe, we stopped R&D capitalization. So we no longer capitalize R&D, right? Because now we are in agile development and agile deployment. So we develop something, we expect to make money with it three months later, right? So there is no need to capitalize and then amortize later. So when you look at uh, our results before, like FY19, you will see our R&D cost was about 28 million. It was actually more or less like 39 million or so because there were 10 and a half million of capitalized R&D costs that you don't see in that gap number when you look at it. And then what happened when the pandemic hit, which was Q4 FY20, we could no longer justify what was in the balance sheet with uh, discounted cash flow analysis of future earnings and all that. So we had to take a big impairment. So that affected Q4 FY20 results. Q4 FY21 results were affected by a one-time share-based compensation event that I can explain to you if necessary. So that was again a one-time event that won't happen again. So when you look at our last three quarters results of FY22, you will see us becoming a GAP EPS positive company, a positive operating income company. You should expect that of, expect that of us in the future as well. right? So now we'll be a disciplined growth company and we have enormous revenue growth potential. So from that revenue growth and gross margin that we gain, we will be disciplined about how we spend more, including in sales and marketing. So essentially, our DNA is we are a disciplined growth. And, and when I look at your numbers, I mean, this company looks like it starts with about a 65% gross margin, at least in a trailing basis. I'm interested, and I'm certainly not asking for guidance, but I'm just trying to get a sense of like, for value investors who have trouble getting their arms around companies that don't necessarily generate or haven't traditionally generated um, operating profits, I'm just trying to get a sense of like what what do you think you know in in a in whatever you call like a, a mature state, this kind of margins whether on gross or operating margins, do you think this business could generate over time? Yeah, it'll be increasing over time. Is a short answer to that. So currently. Like if you're a value investor and you look at our results, unfortunately, I'm not blaming anyone. It is just our own fault that you look at trailing 12 months and that's affected by the last year Q4 results. So once we do this Q4, January through March that we are working through now, once that results comes through, I'm not trying to guide to anything and all that. The good news is the old Q4 gets flushed out of the trailing 12 months results. But when you're a value investor and you're asking yourself the question, you have a gross margin of around 64, 65%, Will you be profitable? You should look at the last three quarter results. Or if you stay patient for a few more months, after that, the trailing 12 months should be fine. So the way I would think about Agilisys is that don't judge us on the past. We've had challenges in the past, except that. I mean, it's not anybody's fault. It's just the way this turnaround was not an easy turnaround. But once we announce this quarter results, 
And then you look at FY22, which we will be finishing now. We are in the Q4 now and use that as a base going forward. So you will hereafter the results are quote unquote clean, easy to understand. It's simple. There's no one time event or anything like that. We will remain disciplined about that. So you take the last three quarter results, you will see it's three consecutive quarters of positive operating you know, net income. Not great levels, but definitely positive. And then once you flush out the last Q4, trailing 12 months results become better. And that becomes a good base for you to judge the future. So FY23 results will be a simple comparison with FY22. We don't need to compare it with two years before and all that like we had to do with COVID. It becomes simpler to understand the business. The numbers become very simple and clean to follow. And you should see that we fit in with your philosophy of being a value investor. That should be really helpful for investors to understand going forward. I want to dig in a little bit into the, the cloud native SaaS move that you've made. I mean, obviously, you've, you made that decision a few years ago. And, and uh, clearly, given where the world's gone, that's been a, a good decision. Um, but I mean, I think it's always... There's this ideal of like how you, know, you roll it out and all, you know, a bunch of bells and whistles go off and there's this magic moment. But, you know, you have to balance between on-prem and off-prem. You have to, you know, you have to balance different customers and their needs. So I'm just trying to get a sense, like, talk a little bit about any challenges um, that you've had, you know, rolling out a SaaS product, especially when you have to maintain older versions of the same product, maybe for, for, other, for other uses. Yeah. So not too difficult is my short answer, right? And I will work backwards with my answer. So please understand, Ben, we are in application software. This is not rocket science, right? We are not sending people to Mars and moon and all that. We, this is simple, straightforward application software that runs hotels. Uh, and I won't give ourselves too much credit that we are dealing with, uh, you know, too many complex things. So, and with modern technology availability today, with all the talents and skill sets that are available, right? In the US, in India, and in other countries as well. Creating a product that works of the same code base, both on-premise and cloud SaaS is not too difficult. The technology is available to do that. And most of our products are based on one framework, one technology stack that makes it simpler for us so that all the resources we hire are interchangeable across products. And the technology is there you know, to be used. We just have the advantage compared to our competitors that we did it in the last three, four years, right? So even though you could consider that a heavy lift, it's an advantage because we had, the, we had access to the most modern technology possible. So building a product that is both on-prem and SaaS is not too difficult and we have been successful with it because a lot of the modern products have already been installed both on-premise and SaaS and it's working well. And it's the same code base. So if an on-premise customer decides to move to cloud two years from now, their users don't have to be retrained. They won't even know from a data center to an Azure cloud. You don't even know that it happened. So that part is not too difficult and it's worked out quite well so far. Now, moving backwards, yes, we have to support the old versions as well and the new version. And other than discipline growth, the other aspect of our DNA is we are very customer-centric. Customer well-being matters to us. So it is not a matter of just driving our vision forward. You can't leave customers behind. These are not customers who have paid $700 for a phone and now the next version comes up. Oh, great, I'll go buy a new version. They spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and millions because we are in the complex enterprise software business. We just can't abandon the products. We have to support the old products as well. And we happily do that. 
because we want to make the new cloud products attractive to customers so that they will like a magnetic effect pull into that but we will not force them into that because customers well being matters to us so what do you do you reduce you you make your r&d more cost effective because we have to support both the old and the new you require more engineers than you typically think we need therefore we have to manage that cost effectively by a good combination of us and india and we are doing fine with that if you work well with your customers with your old products they will move to your new products but you can't abandon them with the old products and expect them to choose your new products they will go choose a competitor's products so yes supporting the old and the new is a burden is a cost burden we carry but it is not too much it is the right thing to do that is how you build business but the modern technology products being both on premise and cloud is not too much of a burden that doesn't add to r&d costs or anything like that that's fairly reasonable to manage these days in today's modern technology can you talk about being customer centric i'm interested in how that played out as the covid outbreak expanded and and your customers were uniquely impacted how did you and how did your software solutions help your customers through that period of time um and do you think you've built up goodwill with a lot of customers that you know will last a long time because of that yeah so again working backwards from your question as soon as covid hit even though we ourselves were in quote unquote trouble that time because we are entirely hospitality focused we did the right thing for the customers a lot of our recurring revenue is license based it is not transaction based very little of our recurring revenue very small amount is transaction based so for all practical purposes we are license based so even though we were not transaction based we gave one time credits to customers it was flat out the right thing to do regardless of how much trouble we were in regardless of whether it was going to get us goodwill or not as a company that is customer centric that will always do the right thing that was the right thing to do so we did it uh, you know full with full heart we did it for a lot of our customers it affected our results temporarily but yes we gained goodwill but you never gain goodwill by one event ben you have to keep up consistent customer service it has to come from the heart you really have to ask how high when a customer says jump up and in our vertically focused business every customer not only knows your name they know your cell number right so uh, these are close relationship kind of businesses right this is not b2c so that gained goodwill but we have maintained that goodwill by continuous good customer service now how did covid affect us it affected us positively in some cases so what we also did along with that one time credit we gave free services to install a remote ordering tool called on demand and we gave it free for a few months see what we were lucky with when covid hit was these contactless solutions these remote ordering solutions this check in check out using your mobile your ability to open a door using just your mobile phone a lot of those products were already in development they were all nice to have for customers and they suddenly became must to have uh, must have right they they had to have those products so a couple of those one of those products we gave free services and free and many cus- hundreds of properties took that up that also gained some goodwill and covid accelerated the need for the additional modules that we had created the core product suffered the sales suffered because nobody was doing any major lifting and replacing core systems but the demand for the additional modules really increased because they were all must have products now especially the increase in gaming and resorts which were doing quite well even from the middle of 2020 so that demand kept going and the rest of the industries want the products but their business environment has to improve so covid accelerated our our position as a modern technology vendor
And now that you have that, I mean, we talked about sales and marketing and investing in that. I mean, what is, what is a process of, you know, approaching new customers? Are do you have to, are they, is there a system that they have to replace that, you know, that, you know, that's going to take a lot of time. And I'm just trying to get a sense of like what the new sales cycle looks like, how that's been impacted by, you know, all of the COVID issues about you know, meeting people and stuff like that. And what, you know, as the world loosens up, what is the opportunity for you to go in and, and pitch, you know, people who are using other vendors to, to, to upgrade to your and, and to switch to your software? Yeah. So in terms of the methodology, the sales methodology or the sales mechanism, it's not changed much for us. Uh, customers who want to meet us in person, we meet them in person. Like I've had, I had to travel to meet customers because many customers know me in person, even before my first vaccination. I just had to go because the customer said, no, Ramesh, you need to be here. You need to see this. So I went. It was a risk to take, uh, but that's a risk I had to take. And that's normally our attitude in business. If a customer wants to see us in person, we are in person. But we are able to do a lot of things remote these days, right? With the technology, with Teams and Zoom and all that. It's very effective to do that. And we do whatever the customer wants. And it just so happens that it's a good combination, right? Many meetings in person, many meetings uh, you know, through the technology available today, both ways, it's working out quite fine. It's quite well. So the sales methodology, we're just comfortable with how it is going. It is effective. It is working. Uh, sometimes you have to travel a lot. Sometimes you don't have to travel a lot. That works fine. Now, remember, we are in the enterprise software space, right? So we are more in the complex install, multi-product install kind of space. So it is not easy for a customer to forklift what they are doing now and replace it there. But what has worked out well for us is that they need one or two of these solutions because of the changing world. Because it is now becoming contactless. Now you just can't solve all your problems through people. You need technology. And there is a shortage of staff as well. So now you need technology solutions to increase guest experience. Both the quality of the experience and the number of touch points. Right? Everywhere you need to know who the guest is what the guest preference is. This guest is left-handed. This guest is a vegetarian. This guest has a nut allergy, right? You need to know all that a lot more these days than before. So what happens is a customer has one or two or three of these needs. Fortunately, now when we do a demo, we do a guest journey demo, both on the FNB POS side and on the hotel management, property management system side. They come looking for one or two products and then they are stunned because we haven't done enough marketing, our own problem, by the breadth of the solutions available. So we carry a guest through the journey from the book, direct channel booking engine all the way through, and now they end up buying six or seven products. So ultimately though, it is a matter of product strength. And COVID, not only COVID, today's technology world is creating a lot of opportunities for us. And our deal size has dramatically increased. I want to turn a little bit to capital allocation because we haven't talked about that yet. This company had not been particularly acquisitive since you arrived. Obviously, you were fixing your, your internal product set. Um, so I'm interested in, in why you thought the this was the right time to make the acquisition of, of Resort Suite and, and, and you know maybe talk about how capital allocation framework has changed within that. Yeah, initially, like initially 2017, 2018, and even to a certain extent 2019, we were fixing our own house. All right. We are not. A, see, you cannot use inorganic growth as a crutch. I'm a strong believer that if you're not good at organic growth, you probably will not be good at inorganic growth as well. If I can't manage my house well, I shouldn't claim that I can go manage my neighbor's house well. Right. So 
we had work to do we had to get our products to modern technology we had to become a cloud saas company that we are today we were focused on that and our doors were almost closed 2017 2018 sorry neighbor don't tap on our door we are just fixing our house internally 2019 we opened up a little bit uh, we looked at a few opportunities 2020 of course covid happened and then we started opening up again in 2021 and we missed a few acquisition opportunities because we are a disciplined buyer right so we don't get because we are a pretty good technology company very solid r&d setup and our bill costs are not too high therefore we don't get too aggressive with buy so uh, the fact that our bill costs are managed and disciplined makes sure our buy costs don't go out of control we don't get enamored and all uh, you know hyped up about something that we see for example 17 new software modules i mentioned to you if we had decided to acquire each one of them i don't know 600 million 700 million a billion how much that would have cost us but today when a buy thing looks very attractive our r&d team says we can get it for you in 9 months so we are disciplined about that right and we remain disciplined we are looking at opportunities uh, we are a disciplined company and when good opportunity comes when you know when the strategic fit and affordability meet the two roads meet we will absolutely be open towards that now resort suite was a perfect fit from the time i made the call there were 150 customers uh, you know the ceo down was was a perfect culture fit their strength areas in resorts as well as we are they are only on premise with most of their products so their 150 customers many big names now have the opportunity to move to cloud solutions as well so it's a revenue synergy opportunity it was just a perfect fit it was right in our rev, you know revenue or profitability multiple range it was a perfect fit we really liked the people they liked us so you know it happened in about 6 months you know pretty quickly those kinds of acquisitions if it comes we will be open minded but we are not inorganic growth is not going to be a crutch for us we are focused on organic growth and if some inorganic growth opportunities come along a technology that we need see now that you have products across a resort we get a lot of data we manage a lot of data of customers so artificial intelligence machine learning that kind of taking us to the next level possibilities are there so if a if a startup company silicon valley an opportunity is there we look at it we are end to end hospitality but there are a few product gaps that we have so if that comes along at a reasonable price we look at it but we'll remain disciplined right we don't need it if it comes along good price and a solid fit like resort suite we will definitely look at and I know you're focused on inter- you're going to be focused more on international is M&A a way to accelerate the international opportunity or would you much rather build rather than buy outside the US Yeah so from a product standpoint we are not building anything specific for international we are building our products in such a way that the same code base supports on prem cloud saas and also supports US and international requirements we don't build a special french system the system is easily translatable to french right so that's so it is not a build or buy equation there but if an opportunity like resort suite comes along internationally and we feel they come with the customer base who are all eager to move to the cloud and the cloud solutions are already there with us we'll absolutely look at it but product wise it's common products across the globe r and d costs are optimized to pre- create one product or one set of products that work across the globe that is not a build or buy issue but if a market share building opportunity a roll up opportunity comes up internationally we'll absolutely look at it and this is a space the saas software space that has just been 
you know, very attractive to both strategic and private equity acquirers. I'm interested in how, you know, you think of that as you are building your company and how you think about, you know, this is what, you know, our company could potentially be worth in the private market versus this is our plan and this is what I think we can do. How do you, how do you balance that as a, as a CEO, given, you know, just all the hype and the love of this space within the, the private equity world, especially? Yeah, uh, we're generally not a very hype-oriented company, Ben. We are pretty simple people trying to build a good organization for the long term, right? That's how we think. And uh, we, uh, I mean, we are not, this is not a build-to-sell kind of thought process. This is a build a great company for the medium term, long term, care about the short term and the long term, uh, focus on your employees, nurture talent, hire great talent, focus on your customers, and the shareholders typically get taken care of quite well, right? If you take care of employees, customers, product and processes, everything else follows. So we are building towards becoming a great company. We have done the first phase of the work. We have done the hard part of the work. And now you will see progress, right? People underestimate the pace of innovation that is going to happen now because 40% of our big R&D team was involved in modernizing products. Now you will see them actually taking the ball and running north and south, right? So now you will see the pace of innovation. And the reason why we don't even think about this private equity and all that now, because the gap is too large between a control premium kind of discussion versus what we see as the potential medium term. Next two, three, four years, what we see as the potential now that we have done the hard work, that gap is too much, right? Why should you believe when I tell you what our potential is? You have no reason to believe me. And we have no interest in the control premium now because it doesn't reflect our future potential. So that bridge cannot be crossed today, right? So we are putting our heads down, building a great company for the medium long term, and we'll see where life takes us. Right? And within that, and in a number of your other responses, you talked a lot about people, um, and that's something that's near and dear to our heart, because I think a lot of investors don't focus enough on that. So you came into the company, and it, obviously there had been some struggles. So I'm interested in, you know, how you would describe the culture of the company and maybe talk a little bit about how it's evolved, you know, especially as, as you as things have started to get better versus kind of those tough, that tough period in 2017. Yeah. So as a CEO, Ben, I always want to be careful answering the question culture because almost every CEO believes that the previous culture was bad and the current culture is great under me. And then the next CEO comes after me, will say that culture was bad and I'm building a great culture, right? So I, I hear too much of that. So I want to be careful, right, with how I answer the question. So basically, these are the changes that have happened in the company from, from a people standpoint and how we manage. This is now a much better balance of vision and execution. Vision strategy is all great, but it's not of much value if you don't execute well. So I would say we are now a lot more conscious of the fact we are only as good as the walk, not so much about the talk. Right? I can go make a speech about our vision three years from now, but it is a matter of how you execute there. I think the current culture is we understand that balance well. I would say the current culture also is probably a lot more customer centric. Today's customer issue matters to us as, as much as what we are going to provide the customer, take them to the cloud six months from now. If you cannot take care of today's issue they have with an old version they are in, I don't think we are capable of taking them to the cloud. So I think the company understands that a lot better now. 
I also think the company understands today that financial responsibility is important, right? You just cannot, like it was in 2017, lose 15 million cash a year and saying you're building something great towards. So I think we understand that reality a lot better, right? So, and I think today's environment is also more transparent when you think about our board relationships and all that with each other, not just with the board, with each other. We are a lot more transparent the employees understand. I do a global town hall soon after my earnings call every quarter. They understand the numbers. They understand the challenges. We have a weekly process of understanding our ups and downs. So we are transparent. We don't hide bad news. We don't do everything great. You know, we make mistakes every week and we correct. So they know that. So the transparency is better. It's more collaborative. We hold each other accountable. It's an open culture. Anybody can walk into my office and say, Ramesh, you're an idiot. That's not the way you do that. You're making a wrong call. But once we make a call, we follow. So I think those are all aspects that are much more balanced today and has improved over time. And within that, you mentioned that you the company's become more customer-centric. I'm interested in, in how that's impacted, if at all, retention rates over time. And, and how do you think about, um, you know, making the software stickier uh, as, you know, as you roll out more modules? Yeah, our customer retention rates are world-class, are extremely good. But before I answer that, let me clarify. We don't play games with our net retention rate numbers, right? We have a philosophy against that. A lot of software companies, the way they explain their net retention rate. So let's say you think of your recurring revenue as a bucket of water, Right. Today's our bucket of water has about 100 million ARR. If you take the last uh, you know, quarter, 25.1 multiplied by four, it's about 100 million, right? Let's call it 100 million to keep the math simple. So that's the amount of recurring revenue water we have in the bucket. The way we, we measure churn is how much water is leaking out and a simple percentage measure. We have 100 million water in the bucket to start the year, let's say, or start a period. And we have lost this much water because of customers going away to a competitor. This divided by that is a percentage. So by definition, it cannot be more than 100. What we don't play games with is to say, but we are also adding water to it. Like if you looked at our last earnings results, new products sale to current customers is at a record level. And new sites where current customers move to new properties is doing very well. So if we add what water we add into the bucket, we can make our net retention rate look much more than 100. We can go to 120, 130, whatever percentage you want, we can go there. But we don't think that is the right way to express retention, which is one minus churn, right? Which is the reverse of churn. So that's one thing to keep in mind. Number two, what software companies are doing today is they are excluding site closures out of the churn number. Oh, that site closed, it's not our fault. Sorry, we don't count it as a churn. We don't play that game. If the water is leaking, it is leaking for any reason we count it as it's a lost annual recurring revenue. So by our simple math, when you count churn divided by recurring revenue run rate, we are well north of 95% customer retention rate, comfortably north of 95%, which is world-class. If we do calculations like how other software companies do, it will be well north of 100%, but we don't like to play that game. And you know, one of the signs of a great business and one with a moat is that it has pricing power I know costs are rising everywhere. I'm sure your labor costs are going up. And I'm interested in um, your assessment of your own pricing power and how do you approach your customers about raising prices over time? 
by producing better value when is the simple answer to the question so far it's not been a major topic for us inflation wise we have done fairly well uh, in terms of uh, you know managing our costs and all that and we have always been the higher priced vendor so in we lose deals because of low price there are competitors who are not spending enough on innovation who are not improving their products who just fight a price war we don't get into that because this market is big enough for us to grow even if we lose a few deals all right it's enough to grow and we are generally the higher priced vendor that's why we are reasonable with our prices we are fair with our prices but we won't go below a certain point just to win a deal there is no point winning a non profitable deal because for us customers stay with us for a very long time very very long time it runs into decades right so uh, we do not need to go win unprofitable customers when there are a lot of profitable customers there so we are disciplined with our pricing we are fair with our pricing and we are innovating at a fast pace we are providing end to end value the customer saves a lot of integration costs instead of you going to four vendors one a booking engine one a property management system one a remote ordering tool uh, you know one a quick pay solution to scan the qr code when you instead of doing that when you go to one vendor they come already tested end to back and it also comes with an open api architecture in case you want to change your mind later that's of value to them so if you produce value there is enough pricing in this market so that's not a major concern i don't wake up uh, worried about price And I'm, I'm curious because you've been through a number of situations and, and turnarounds, and um, obviously you've, you've you've done a lot of work so far at this company. What you know in in terms of your own leadership skills, like what do you think you've developed over the time you know that that have that have allowed you to be so effective in the, in in such difficult situations? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I've been effective, but the team put together has been very effective. Ben, you know, most of the credit goes to them. and a lot of the people who work here uh, in the current management team has been stable now for 4 years or more than 4 years and all our vps and above the average tenure here is 5 years or so so we've been a team that is sort of stuck together right we like each other we challenge each other so it's been a collaborative environment so it's worked out well so as far as my own leadership style i, I don't know uh you know much to talk i'm little uncomfortable talking about myself all the time it's all about the company but i would say my leadership style hasn't changed much ben over the years i've always been sort of a hard working guy right i've always been an attention to detail sort of guy and i'm reasonably okay with enterprise software because i was a hands on developer myself 10 12 years i've grown through the ranks i've been through every position you can practically go through in enterprise software so i have a fair you know level of competence and all that i understand the business quite well and i'm more a detail oriented guy i am a strong believer in that right i am a hands on sort of manager because my belief system is that as a leader you make two kinds of decisions you make data supported decisions analytic supported decisions most people in this world are reasonable most people in this world are smart so if you show them enough data and you make sure you have looked at all angles you don't miss out on a piece of data it leads to a good decision i can convince the board i can convince the management team because i have data to show and most people are reasonable in this world they reach the same conclusion but a leader makes another kind of decision which is instinctive where you are short of time where you have to make a quick call today that's like a baseball bat batter it's coming at you at 90 miles an hour right or you are a quarterback you have 2 seconds to decide between three wide receiver options you have those are instinctive decisions you don't have the time 
you have to carry people along with you that comes with practice that comes with hard work that comes with understanding the details so a detail i'm understanding today may not be of uh, it, you may think why is he spending time on that but i spend time on that because i know somewhere in the future i have to make a quick call the more i understand the details i think the higher the probability of the decision being right so i am a hands on sort of manager now how has my leadership style changed i would say i probably become more patient with age uh, i've learned to handle uh, you know board relationships and all a lot better i've been through a couple of ceo stints so i have a more probably more mature relationship with the board it's also increased my confidence level when you are successful in a couple of things you feel a little better that okay you know there's a high probability you will make the right decision and probably the biggest change is i've become more patient i've become a nicer competitor if you will i've always grown up as an ultra competitive guy right so i was a bit too much of a competitor i've learned to be more of a cooperation guy right you have to work with your competitors as well they also are doing a job this industry could use multiple good vendors so i become a lot more broad minded about competition and with age i guess all that comes and as a firm we always like to focus on the key variables for each company so i'm curious about what are three or four things you think this company absolutely has to get right for the stock to be a good investment for for both employees and shareholders going forward uh, yeah so we have to get subscription revenue growth right overall we have to get revenue growth right because we have done the hard work for that now there is no excuse right now we need you need to get the growth equation right within that you have to get the subscription revenue growth equation right because the products are there and like we publicly announced in the last couple of two three earnings calls more than 90% of our customers new properties are choosing to be in the cloud are choosing saas solution so you have to grow subscription revenue so that we absolutely have to get right about 2/3 of our revenue today comes from pos while pms is more profitable it's more pure software and all that we have to get pms right all right we just have to get property management system and all the additional modules around it right and there are good signs for it our subscription uh, sales in pms has dramatically increased right in spite of many of our market verticals still struggling due to covid like asia and all that so we have to get pms growth right we have to get overall subscription revenue right we have to get talent people talent right we have to nurture the talent we have today and we have to be a company that attracts top level talent from outside because now we are moving from being an old technology company to being a truly cloud company virtually 90% of the installs we do in calendar 2022 are all going to be sophisticated higher technology right well integrated so that means there's a much bigger need for talent so we need to be a company of a of a prestige that high that attracts the best talent in the industry uh, so those are all some of the equations we have to get right we have to continue being customer centric right we have to do all the right things given our momentum we have to make sure we don't get an acquisition wrong that's the reverse of your question right we are because that's that's one of the risk we have to make sure we handle carefully right so i think those are some of the top things that come to mind and when you're executing a difficult turnaround and you said as you said you were solving for a lot of variables i'm sure there were some mistakes along the way it's almost inevitable i'm interested in in any mistakes that you've made that you could highlight and 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 what you think you learned from them you know over the last call of 5 years yeah so micro and macro answers right let's just break it up at a micro level i'm a paranoid guy by nature who uh, i think i make mistakes every day right and 
I'm sure at the end of this podcast, I'll be wondering, I should have answered that question better. And I didn't think of that. Why did I not think of that when he asked me that question? So I should have meetings that I don't handle well enough or, you know, customer conversations and uh, deal discounting decisions. I, I think series of mistakes and all you can do in life, Ben, is to improve. Right? I'm a great believer that the only thing I need to be good at is improving. Right? So everything else can be taken care of. So I do make a lot of micro mistakes along the way that are just too many to list here. But at a macro level, right? You always look back at the five years and you think about the big decisions. Uh, I, some of the people change decisions, I think should have been faster, right? I think I was playing it a little bit too safe because I was trying to make sure I don't uh, rock the boat while you move the boat forward, right? The boat had been stuck in mud for a while. I was a little bit too careful with that, maybe, you know, that. And now looking back as to how successful our R&D efforts have been, I'm wondering if a better, more aggressive CEO than me would have doubled down on that better in 1819, right? Now that I see how successful it was, maybe an aggressive, a better CEO than me would have gotten it done a year or year and a half before by increasing the investments in R&D even more than I did, right? I think taking 230 people R&D to about 850 to 900 now was an aggressive step across years, but maybe I should have done it even faster so that the position we are in today, we would have been a year or so ago, right? And we made a couple of mistakes with share-based comp, which we did the right thing. It is really helping us with employee retention now. Uh, the great resignation and all that you read in the papers don't apply to us that much in the US. So we are not with our senior staff. We're not having too many issues. We did the right thing, but we could have managed that better, right? That's another mistake that we learned from that we will do better now. One of the reasons I was smiling when you're saying that is because you're probably the third or fourth CEO to say the exact same thing that especially in a turnaround, you have to move fast. You have to, you have to be willing to move faster. And so that's, it's interesting that how often that's come up throughout this podcast. Uh, this has been great. And, I, and I'm, I'm really curious about this last question that we, and the one we always close with is, um, so what would you say is the most misunderstood or underappreciated aspect of, of this company or, or business? Yeah, so I think a couple of things are misunderstood. By the way, it's not the it's not the perceiver's fault. It is our own fault, right? Our past results uh, are sort of dragging down what our true state is today, right? So when you, as an onlooker, look at us, I think you're making a fair, uh, you know, assessment of where we are. But that's because of you know how our past results are. So I think our current short-term, medium-term, long-term potential is being underestimated. Right, because you don't have a view of the window that we have, right? We know what is going on inside, and you're sort of judging us by what the past results are. So I think we are underestimated as to the current position we are in, right? The short-term, long-term potential is being underestimated. I think our pace of innovation about six, nine months from now is being underestimated because you don't see the power of our R&D because our R&D is still to a certain extent involved in fixing the past right in modernizing the products right this is like a running back who is busy changing his shirt he's not carrying the ball forward yet but without changing the shirt you can't run the ball forward right so you're caught in that phase now so people are underestimating how much our pace of innovation is going to carry us forward in the next six to nine months the complexity of the business is underestimated which means a barrier to entry is underestimated the work we have done creating end-to-end about 30 software modules, about less than 10 of them core, about 17 of them additional modules, 
the end to end power that it gives the customer what kind of competitive advantage that is and how difficult it is to build like even if our biggest competitor decides today that that's what we're going to do it's not easy to do that it's going to take them years to do that right so the barrier to entry and our competitive advantage positioning now is is underestimated and i think the difficulty of this business building the right culture being customer centric even if it slows down innovation supporting the old and the new together is all not easy you know the, the, the creating that sort of a mindset company is not easy i think that's also underestimated well i'm really looking forward to see how this all plays out i mean you've done a lot of work and it must feel great to be in a position to you know finally roll it out to the world and, and you know finally have all, you know the product set in and ready to go so good luck with all that and thanks so much for all this time it's been uh, it's been a great conversation thank you ben thank you for the opportunity i appreciate it very much thank you thank you that's it for our show today we hope you enjoyed the conversation We recognize that you have a lot of different podcast choices and we appreciate you spending the time with us. We are continually working to make the show better and we would love your feedback. The more candid and honest, the better. And if you have any suggestions for public company CEOs you would like to see on the podcast, please let us know. And of course, warm intros are always appreciated. Please feel free to email us at podcast at costreetcapital.com with your comments or suggestions. Thanks again, and stay tuned for the next episode of Compounders, Anatomy of a Multibagger.